Welcome to the Get to Vet podcast, where we bridge the knowledge gaps in the military transition process so you can focus on what's ahead. Hey, Get to Vet listeners, this is Mike. And now for my personal disclaimer, although I am active duty military, I'm not an official spokesperson of the United States Navy. Any of my views expressed on the Get to Vet podcast are based on my personal experience. Thanks for listening. Hey there, Get to Vet. This is Trevor Maxwell. Got my name right today. And with me as always is... <laughs> yes, Mike Riggs. <laughs> We're on a roll already. <laughs> yep. Hey, and so today is is a great opportunity for us because, you know, we, we always try to go out and find people who are doing different things and... Today, we have uh, a guest, David Galooch, who is also a former Navy EOD guy, which we, we have a tendency to, to have a lot of them on the show. But, um, you know, he served his country in uniform, and now he's making uh, an effort to serve in another capacity. So he's the first one of our guests that we've had who's actually running for office. So I'll let him go ahead and talk, uh, talk a little bit about himself. David, introduce yourself. Yeah. Hey, guys. Pleasure to be on with you. Um, I'm Dave Galooch. Uh like you said, former uh, Navy EOD officer, went to the Naval Academy, graduated in 2012. Um, after that, was lucky enough to get the opportunity to go to grad school. So I went overseas to the UK, to the University of Cambridge, got a master's degree there in economics. <clears throat> after that, um, went to start the EOD pipeline, obviously in dive school. So started that in August of 13, graduated uh, you know, the entire pipeline December of 14, and then went to Virginia Beach. And I was at two, two mobile units there for my like eight years on active duty, um, uh, mobile unit two first, and then uh, mobile unit 12 second. So did two deployments in that time, one to the Middle East and then one to Somalia um, and got out of the Navy in August, 2019. Nice. So I'll oh, go ahead, Mike. No, I just, you know, just as you were talking a little bit about your resume, it resonated a little bit with me when I was a CMC at EOD school. And I go into the Navy classes and I would I would ask a, a little bit about, you know, the background on some of the, you know, the enlisted folks specifically. But it was really interesting to see the where some of the officers came from. A lot of them came from the academy, but we had some, you know, graduates from MIT with master's, uh, PhDs, you know, the, the folks that we somehow attract to our occupation is amazing you know with i had uh, enlisted guys with uh, law degrees i had enlisted guys with uh that were airline transport pilots you know they're full up commercial pilots that are out flying you know uh people around in, in passenger jets i mean it's absolutely insane the the quality of talent that we attract into the eod pipeline and you know, I, to, to, to the point of where I would sit in there, I'm like, I don't even know if I could get in this community anymore. Cause I'm just, <laughs> I'm just this kid that came from West Virginia, like Trevor. You know, that's, that's funny. You mentioned that. Cause what was it? I don't know, four, four or five years ago when I was down there and we had that working group at the schoolhouse and I was the command rep for mobile unit six. And you told us to go have lunch with all the students and we went in there and sat down and, you know, there's all these senior chiefs, master chiefs and stuff in there talking to these guys and they don't know what to think. Cause you know, I started talking to them and E2s and E3s that, that are like, yeah, I had a bachelor's in electrical engineering and, you know, 
guys like David, you know, who were like, well, you know, I went to the Naval Academy and then, you know, got my master's at Harvard or Cambridge or whatever. And I'm just like, Jesus, dude, like if you would have went into the cafeteria at EOD school when I was there and you would have started talking to the guys, you, you would have heard like, well, you know, the judge told me I had to join the Navy or go to jail. <laughs> so. yeah. Yeah, it's definitely swung from criminal records to academic records in the last 20 years, for sure. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it is the most talented pool of sailors in the Navy, and I think probably the most talented pool of people in the military, honestly. It's like, it's it's completely mind-blowing when you show up, you know, day one of dive school, and in your class, you have former investment bankers, you know, former electrical engineers who said, hey, look, uh, the civilian world just was not for me. I wanted something different. I was tired of the, of the cubicle. So I figured I would learn how to dive and jump out of airplanes and take bombs apart. So it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty humbling experience as an officer to be able to, to lead folks like that. But it's also a very unique experience because quite honestly, most of the sailors don't need really any guidance at all. They just know what to do because they're so talented and so motivated. So, I mean, uh, I, I had the honor and time of my life being able to work with them because they truly are the, the greatest folks in the military, in my opinion. I like that because it's, it was kind of like my own personal philosophy. I had more of like, a, I guess you could call it a servant leadership style where I was like, dude, I, I've got some, some high performing individuals here. I just need to help facilitate their success. Exactly. Exactly. I, I think a lot of times, like the problem is when you grow up and you see like war movies and stuff, you know, the leaders always like the rah, rah, yelling, telling people what to do. And in reality, that's not what a leader does, right? A leader understands the strengths of his team and then puts people in the best position to succeed. And a lot of times that's like staying out of the way and letting them do their thing. And you provide top cover, provide guidance. But at the end of the day, you know, oftentimes if you're able to be silent as a leader and the mission's getting done, you're succeeding wildly, even though, you know, that may not be your traditional kind of view of, of, of how a leader should act. But, um, you know, I think if more leaders took that approach, we'd, we'd have a lot more constructive teams and things, things going on in this country. So, yeah, I think we've been really fortunate to be a part of organizations that are bottom up driven and almost a bottom up led organizations to where we just, you know, a lot of times I would just sit there and watch and wonder if like you just give left and right lateral limits and watch them do amazing things. And, and, you know, it, it, that's the thing too, as we transition out of the military, you know, we, we've got it beaten into our heads sometimes uh, literally uh, that it's all about, it's the we, you know, cause we've, we've been serving something greater than ourselves for, you know, in my case, 30 years. And then you get into the civilian sector and it's okay. Well, what do you do? What, what have you done? Uh, and, and it's, I found for me, that's a very difficult thing to flip in my mind to go, okay, well, I, I did this and I did that and, and I led them and I, I was a part of that. And, and I was the one that, did that budget and I was the one that made that success where in, in an honesty, uh, I think I've, uh, I'm almost lying or I'm full of crap when I'm saying that because it's really the, the folks that were, that I was fortunate enough to, to lead at the time that were, you know, that were following me, I guess, to, to, for lack of a better term, but you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to, to flip around 
especially during interviews. Cause I, I was, you know, during the honor foundation and, how, and doing some of those mock interviews, man, <laughs> to say, well, I, I did this and I did that just to get selfish instead of team centric, just doing self self-centered and self-centric type things. It's a very difficult mental exercise to do and participate in. Yeah, certainly. I know that's something that I, I had trouble in transitioning out of the Navy as well, even, you know, uh, in the course of having to write the resume and send it off to potential employers, right? Like understanding how do you um, highlight your kind of the individual achievements, right? So how do you how do you pull apart what you did as part of a team to highlight to an employer specific skills you need in the civilian world? Um, but I think more more fundamentally, just the change in mindset is is almost um a 180 from the military i mean you have to learn to stop using certain words or certain phrases you can't use acronyms right uh there's just a fundamentally different approach you need to take when you're engaging and leading a team in the civilian world than than in the military but i think ultimately it's it's fantastic for your personal development to get a variety of 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 experiences and i think there's a lot of rich things folks folks from the military bring to the business world um, you know, I, I transitioned in August 2019. I've been at Comcast Corporation ever since outside of Philadelphia. And um, I work with, uh, with a lot of veterans at Comcast. So we have a lot of folks that kind of understand the veteran lexicon and the experience and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, it's, it's been an interesting experience for me kind of figuring out where my strengths lie and, and how I can plug into uh, a great company. So nice. I think so- it's really oh, go ahead, Trevor. Oh yeah, no. Well, I'll let Mike finish. I, I was going to ask, like, what kind of led to your decision to make the transition, um, but I'll let Mike ask his first. No, go ahead. That's a great. That's a great question. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, like everyone um, who serves in the EOD community, uh, a lot of it was personal stuff. So, my wife and I had been together since 2015. We had spent, you know, I guess going forward to 2019, we had been together for four years, four plus years, and we had spent over 50% of that time away from each other. So it was a sort of, sort of kind of assessment of both of us that, Hey, look, I think it's time for something different. Um, You know, trying to prioritize our marriage and our personal life together. And then candidly, you know, as an EOD officer, your career trajectory and experience is much different than an enlisted sailor. And, you know, um, if I could change something about the community, it would be giving EOD officers more opportunities to command operationally at higher ranks. Cause you don't, you don't really have that. Right. So after, after your platoon and your company ride, um, unless you're lucky enough to get say an XMCM company as a more senior Lieutenant, or if they do make an XMCM company command at like Oh four, which I've heard, you know, some kind of talks about, um, you know, commanding a mobile unit is really in, in, an admin command, uh, um, you know, you're not really an operational commander, even if you deploy abroad as a CTG commander, it's not the same sort of experience controlling your folks in the battle space. And to me, you know, that's just not what I wanted to kind of shoot for at the end of, you know, an 18 year kind of arc, but that's just my, that's just my preference. Um, but I do know a lot of folks feel the same way on the, on the officer side of the community. So one thing that I do stay engaged with, with the community is sort of what kind of steps they're taking to maybe help that in the future and provide more, more opportunities for officers to meaningfully engage at the operational level at uh, higher ranks. Cause I think that would, that would help in sort of retaining um, some folks that, you know, currently get out. 
Yeah, I I have seen it too because I know lots of, of really solid guys in in the officer ranks. Which I, you know, Chris, don't you? Who? Chris. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Awesome yeah. dude. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Super. He's one of those guys, right? He got out of the Naval Academy, went to Harvard, um, came through, and he's he's just one of those guys who's like, you know, I'm I love being here on a team and and stuff like that, and and. You know, when you said that, I was like, okay, well, that, that tends to be a problem in the community is we lose a lot of really good officer leadership um, because they say, hey, you know what? I know I can go out and do other things. Like, I'm confident in my abilities to go out and do this stuff. And, um, yeah, I, I hate seeing it happen, but I also get it because that was, you know, for me, I was in that same boat. I didn't want to, you know, be stuck behind a desk while I was still in uniform, so... I said, Hey, you know what? My time's up. <laughs> it just almost aligned perfectly. I finished my last team right as I was getting ready to retire and, and punched out. So I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of it, I, I mean, honestly, the personal stuff really was the the big driver, just kind of wanting to prioritize the marriage and the personal relationship, being closer to my family as well. So my, my dad died before I was born. So I'm, I'm really close to my mom and I'm, I'm an only child. So that, that was kind of another piece of it too. I, I, I just kind of, wanted to prioritize some personal relationships that I had really put on hold since I was 18 years old. But, um, you know, that sort of officer dynamic and sort of career progression um, also, you know, had a, had a role to play. Yeah. I think it's going to get increasingly more difficult for us to retain talent, both in the officer ranks and the enlisted ranks across not only just the UD community, but across the military in general, uh, the blended retirement system, I think, is something that is the elephant in the room for retention that we really haven't addressed completely. Uh, I think that gives folks a nice suitcase if they're fiscally responsible to just pick it up and take it away, you know, that I didn't have, especially at 10 years. Uh, I was actually just going into EOD right around that time, so I wouldn't have done that. And 9-11 happened at my 10-year anniversary in the Navy, but... You know, it definitely gives folks a lot of options, I think, nowadays. And, and, you know, even getting people to come in the community right now with the economy the way it is uh, and the employment rate is is what it is. It's hard because we compete across talent, across the, you know, America. So it's when the employment, you know, unemployment rate's great for America. It's not so good for us, especially in special operations, because we just get that minor, minor percentage of the folks that come in and it's, it makes it even that more difficult. And then when there's not, you know, a whole lot of conflict going on and we're, we, we're not really doing what we're trained to do, even though I, I really caution folks who, especially young guys, when I get to teach, you know, leadership, the EOD leadership continuum, I hear it all the time from those guys. Oh, I just want to go to war. You know, be careful what you wish for, man, because uh, so those who have tasted it don't ever want to taste it again. At least I don't know too many that do. So, uh, you know, uh, but I think, you know, just keeping people in is going to be so difficult. And, but, you know, that brings me to the point I was going to make earlier is that you are now trying to find another way to serve and to continue to serve. You know, I was fortunate enough. They've heard this on the podcast many times. I was a legislative fellow up there on Capitol Hill. And I was fortunate enough to meet folks like Rick Mass from Florida and Dan Crenshaw from Texas and a, a guy who was a defense fellow in Senator Rubio's office to 
before me. So he would have been in 17. He was actually elected to Texas, uh, I think district 23, Tony Gonzalez. And so he's up there now. So, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of great former military folks up there, but I don't think there's enough. And, you know, even though I think there's a very, very small percentage of the U S population that actually serve in the military, I think there's a, the, the, the percentage that need to go and lead and be in those positions, I think a, a great majority should come from the military, especially when you're making those critical decisions, such as the national defense and, and what we get involved in from a global poli and political perspective. Yeah, I think, I think having a subject matter expertise is really essential and helpful. Um, but I think more fundamentally, right, the, the advantage of veterans is that we all speak the same language. So irrespective of party, you know, we're used to working for something uh, bigger than ourselves and the efforts with which, with which we're engaged, you know, uh, sort of hold the country up in such a light that we're able to see it in ways that maybe other folks are not. And, and I think that's really valuable. So, you know, for me, the, the fundamental challenge is how do we transcend the hyper-partisanship and, you know, uh, the lens through which everything is viewed is, you know, hard and fast party lines, right? And all of us have, you know, our own perspectives and our own biases, but really when you're a legislator or a public leader, you know, you signed up to make hard decisions. You signed up to have the humility to work with people you may not agree with. And that's something veterans are used to doing um, every single day, whether it be, you know, working at a supply depot with a bunch of folks that, you know, may have different beliefs than you or look different than you, or whether it be, you know, on a multinational ground force, you know, in some war zone, right, where you guys have to speak to an interpreter, you guys understand how to get the mission done no matter what. So I think that's, that's the kind of mindset we need to bring to Congress and bring, bring to pretty much every, every kind of level of government moving forward, because I think that's, that's really the only way we can we can transcend the era of partisanship we've entered into. And I'll tell you like the district that you're going to run in or that you, you've signed up to run in uh, Pennsylvania district five, you know, the folks that I've been fortunate enough to serve with like uh, Commodore Tim Rotoro, he retired captain prior enlisted guy. I think he, I think he spent what Trevor 30, 38 years, I think in the Navy. Yeah. He was uh, a, he was a chief, uh nuclear electricians made if i remember i just remember he was like 70 years old and that dude was the most jacked guy in the gym <laughs> yeah he, he's probably still that way i haven't seen him for a couple of years but when i saw him a couple of years he was i i still wouldn't want to fight him yeah uh and then he had guys like tommy gura the the retired mass chief that uh uh i, I mean Tommy's just, he's a salt of the earth guy, you know, from up in that area. I mean, those, the folks that you're going to potentially represent, I mean, I swear they, they bleed red, white, and blue up there. So it's an awesome group of folks. And, you know, just the folks I've got to serve with from that area. I mean, they're, they're awesome people. Yeah. I mean, look, absolutely. The, what, I love living here in Delaware County. Um, I live in Newtown Square, which is, you know, in Delaware County. So just outside of Philadelphia, the district itself is Delaware County and a piece of Philadelphia. And uh, yeah, I mean, you just have people that love this country, people that go to work every day. And um, realistically, that that's how most people in this country are, right? The majority of people are not consumed with ideology. They're not consumed with partisan topics. They just want to put food on the table. They want to provide opportunity for their children. They want to pay their mortgage and they want to, you know, uh, protect this country and protect the institutions and the history and the ideals that 
you know, the majority of people hold dear and help, help bind us together. So I think the important thing is tuning out all of the extraneous noise that, that we find in today's public discourse and focus on what truly matters to the majority of people who just aren't heard because quite frankly, their voices are not the ones we hear uh, in, in our media, on social media. So, you know. That's, I mean, you know, that's something I, I don't think I'll ever run for office, but uh, <laughs> I would probably get laughed out of there. But um, I, I'm always interested uh, and fascinated when I hear people talk about that, because I think, you know, it seems like a lot of the people who get into politics, you know, have that very strong desire to serve, um, you know, despite what happens, you know, when you get there. What, you know, what was kind of that motivating force for you to get to actually step up and say, hey, you know what, I, I know this is tough. I know, you know, things are going to get rough and people are going to get nasty with me and my family, but I'm, I'm willing to deal with that in order to, you know, go in there and, and work for the greater good. Yeah. So there were, there were a couple things. Um, number one. So I talked about my mom earlier, but, you know, Growing up without a father, he was killed by, by a junk driver before I was born. My mom raised me by herself. You know, she had support from my grandparents and my family, obviously. But, you know, she always worked two to three jobs. She worked her butt off constantly. And she fought for me. And she told me, hey, look, you know, despite the adversity you face in your life, you can do anything. And if you have opportunity, you have, you have to pay back. You have to pay it forward, right? Um, so for me, I wanted to be an advocate in some way for people, essentially my whole life, uh, because I grew up with her as, you know, the paragon of what a servant leader should be, because that's what she was to me, a servant leader. She fought for me. Um, so that, that was always, I think, the biggest force behind my desire to serve. But I'd say the, the thing that kind of gave me a shove off the sidelines, honestly, was um, uh, the juxtaposition of the death of Scott Dayton, who, you know, uh, I'm sure both of you guys knew from mobile unit two, my unit mate, his cage was, was across the hall from mine in the, in the platoon space. Um, my platoon and his platoon was, you know, always, always did stuff together out on the range, that sort of thing, just hanging out in each other's cages. You know, when Scott died in 2016, <clears throat> obviously that rocked the whole EOD community. Um, you know, he was, he was a pillar in the community. Everyone knew him. And, you know, I remember being at his funeral with my wife standing in a line that seemed, you know, half a mile long with a flag over the casket there to pay our respects to him. And fast forward to the summer of 2020 and the fall of 2020, and we had such violence in the country. You know, I remember watching flags get burned and really desecrated and disrespected in, in a lot of places around the United States. And to me, the failure of our public leaders to come to common sense, kind of reasonable solutions to a crisis signaled to me that Scott's legacy and hit and the legacy of folks like him who paid the ultimate price, they were being tarnished. And, and I felt like I couldn't stand on the sidelines anymore because, you know, our friends and colleagues joined to serve, not to get rich, not to get powerful, not to aggrandize, you know, influence and power and attention to themselves, but because they just want to keep their families safe and they love the country. And um, in a sense, you know, I'm getting off the sidelines because I want to reunite public service with elective office because 
quite candidly, I don't think we always get that in this country anymore. Yeah. Well, that's something that Mike and I can identify with very strongly because I, I went to school with Scott and he and I, uh, Mike was actually our first team chief and he was, Mike was Scott's first team leader. So, you know, Scott and I have been good friends for a very long time. I mean, I knew his family, his, his kids and everything. And, um, you know, I actually spoke at his memorial and, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I remember that day in Arlington yeah. when we were there at his funeral, big, huge line of people waiting to pound their pens into his, into his casket. And, you know, there was a few of us, I was one of the people that, you know, kind of got ushered to the front, but, um, the people there at Arlington actually made us leave. <laughs> he said, yeah, you guys have to, we have to cut this short because we have other yeah. And I remember that very, very well, actually. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. And um, yeah, we had, you know, uh, Rick Hofer had to say like, Hey, you know, if, if you knew him or worked with him or had a personal relationship, you know, come to the front because we don't, we don't have a lot of time. And yeah, absolutely. yeah, you're, you're right. That was for me, that was a big, big one because all of us, you know, older dudes, we thought, well, you know, we all kind of made it. We lived through, some of the worst of it and, and got through to the other side. And, um, you know, I had like five people all called me at once when, when, it, you know, word got out. And then Mike was the first person I called after I got done bawling my eyes out on my, on my mother-in-law's back porch after Thanksgiving dinner. So, um, but you know, I still talk to his wife, you know, his daughter's back in school. Um, and, you know, she always asks me to do his toast whenever we have an event commemorating him. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's not just, honestly, I mean, you go down the line though, right. We, we've lost so many good friends and colleagues um, and, you know, not just killed, but yeah. Wounded, right. Brad Snyder, you know, hero of mine from the Naval Academy. Um, you know, he was not at the Academy at the time I was, but obviously I've gotten to know him over the years to, you know, just kind of various events. Uh, you know, I've met him a few times, just always, always an inspirational guy to me, Chris Mosco. Um, after I graduated from the Naval Academy, I actually, uh, got a challenge grant from the, from the Mannion foundation to go to Cambridge. So that's, that's how I was, I was able to go to grad school. And I actually did a community service project with the boys and girls club of Washington, DC, where I, I essentially gave a series of character lectures all summer long before I went to Cambridge about Chris and about his sacrifice and about his life and about, you know, service to the country. So I, I got to know Chris's dad pretty well um, through, through that process as well. So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's all of the, you know, the sum total of the sacrifices of our friends and colleagues, you know, build a foundation that we need to stand upon and preserve because whether or like it, if, if we like it or not, we, we inherit it and we have the responsibility to ensure that, you know, what they died for um, is preserved. So, you know, again, it's, uh, it's really not about party and it's not about ideology. It's, 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 it's about common sense ways to respect their legacy and, and to move forward together. And uh, kind of, like I said, it, it, it um, the only thing necessary for the conditions that prevail now uh, to continue is for good people to stay on the sidelines and do nothing. Yeah. Well, those, those other two names you threw out there, you know, I, I again, people I have close personal connections to, cause Brad, I was his team chief 
when he got hurt. Um, it's funny because a few weeks before that, you know, I had gotten wounded and in our LPO, Bobby Wood, a couple weeks later got wounded. And then, you know, I, I think I got called at like three in the morning. Somebody came and grabbed me and they said, yeah, you know, Brad, Brad got hurt. And, um, you know, Chris Moscow, that's another tough one because Chris and his teammate, Sean Carson, who also, you know, was killed a few, few months later, those guys relieved me. And, and that's a tough thing, you know, knowing that the guys who relieved you so you could go home aren't, you know, didn't make it back. Kind of like what Mike said and kind of the sentiment I think you're, you're putting out there is, I know things aren't, aren't perfect where they are, you know, where we're at right now, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of folks in America who don't realize how good they have it and, and, you know, what people are giving up. Um, to allow that to continue. No, I want to also bring up a point too that, and it's not just the EOD community, but I saw it in the EOD community routinely, is when we would have these tragic incidents or these fatalities, the next day or probably within hours, there's people lined up outside your door volunteering to take their spot, regardless of what happened. You know, there, there are people in there fighting sometimes, fighting each other, to take somebody's spot that just got killed. And, you know, to the point that I said earlier about the quality of people that I think I frankly say I'm spoiled to work around for the last two decades, you know, and I don't think it's, it's not just to the UD community. I think it's, it's common across the U S military, but you know, the fact that folks have just experienced a great loss, a tragic loss. And yet, you know, here we go. Let's put me in coach. Let's go. I want to go get some, you know, and, and I felt the same way even after Scott died, you know, um, but, you know, I think you just see that routinely and it just speaks to the high quality of people that we have, you know, that we get to serve with. Yeah, it, 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 that's spot on. And then, you know, again, so I, I, you know, my adult life, I'm shaped and I'm molded by, you know, the, the example of all of these people. And that's what public service means to me. Uh, so then when I see people you know, using the word public service as, as a punchline instead of, you know, a corpus of moral principles by which they live their lives. Um, it upsets me, honestly, it upsets me because again, those guys didn't get rich. They didn't get powerful from their service, but they truly changed lives. And, and that's what public service is supposed to be about. I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, you know, it, and I think a lot of Americans are too, because that's just a a significant amount. What was it? I I remember they, was it five or six years ago? They, they said like Congress, Congress's uh, approval rating was at an all time low. And, you know, a lot of it's, it's kind of like watching your kids just bicker back and forth with each other. It's, it's like, Hey, let's stop, you know, let's focus on what's important here. So I, yeah, it's frustrating. And, you know, but the thing is, is I'm glad that we have guys like you who, you know, have know what it's like to lead through, you know, dangerous situations and, and, you know, be able to think clearly in the midst of all that and, and come out, you know, with, with something that's a, at least at the very least, um, you know, a halfway, uh, achievable plan. I, 
I think about that all the time. Like, you know, in EOD, we always say like, Hey, if you wait for things to be perfect, it'll never happen. Well, you know, the interesting thing I think I found throughout my career and especially what you're potentially going to go do. And I hope you do for sure. You know, I talked crap about, you know, the group when I was at the mobile unit and, you know, at the schoolhouse when you're going through school, you know, you're like, man, where's that wizard behind the curtain? And you go back as a CMC, the command master chief. And you're like, holy cow, there's a whole lot of, you know, backside support to make this school run the way it really runs that you never saw when you were out there in the practice areas or you're out there, you know, doing just trying to get through that school and then you know before i was a defense fellow i mean of course the national media and you know they're always talking garbage about the you know congress and and of course you know you have your own biases when you when you go up there and then you go up there and you're like oh okay and every every time you go to i went to work for the group you know and i was like okay now i get it i i it starts to answer a little bit of the why you know, and then you go to the schoolhouse and that answers a little bit of the why. And then I got to go up to Congress, fortunately, and, and that started to answer a lot of the why. You know, and you see like this constitution, you know, and the fact that these cats made this piece of paper, you know, w- well over 200 years ago, drinking mead and, and candlelight, wearing wigs and, and it, it, it's just a, I mean, these people had been like time travelers or something because the way that that document, I was up there in 2019, and the way they were stressing that document, you know, across the street at the Supreme Court and down on Pennsylvania Avenue, and the House and the Senate going going after each other, it was absolutely amazing. And there are days when you would see the what what party would take action, and then there are days where you know the American public is like, Congress isn't doing anything, and 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 some days I would sit back and reflect like. There, there are days when you don't want them to do anything. There are days when you want them to do things, and there are days when you don't want them to do anything. And and just to be on the inside and to see the inside baseball and to see how the sausage was made was phenomenal insight, just to be immersed in that culture. And I think it's it's a fascinating thing to see from the inside that I think the vast majority of the American population will never get to see. And, and the fact that I would – some nights you would there, – there's – like conference rooms underneath the Capitol and, and, you know, the rotunda. And then there's, there's a several floors underneath or at least a few floors underneath. And we would go for like veterans meetings and we have keynote speakers there like Tulsi Gabbard and folks like that. When it's all over, you you know, drink a couple beers with folks and, and talk. And then once that's over, you got to go back to your Senate office, which is one of the three buildings, you know, on one side or the other, the Capitol. And you have to go up and then over across through the tunnels. Well, you know, if you got your staff badge, you walk up and then next thing you know, you're out in the rotunda and you're the only one there. And it's like seven or eight o'clock at night. And it is creepy because you're, you know, just hours before there are Capitol police in there and there's thousands of tourists in there and it is just creepy. And then I think the first time I did that, uh, Bush 41 had been lying in state there, not even like days before. So here I am standing in the exact same spot where President Bush had been lying in state. And I'm this dumb kid from West Virginia just standing in the Capitol Rotunda completely by myself. And it was just an amazing experience. Yeah, I can imagine that would be humbling. And I mean, I, I think the Defense Fellow Program is, is I mean, that's just a, a 
really a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I think it's invaluable to, you know, help to educate service members, say, look, this is how policy is made. And like you said, this is, this is how the sausage is made. I love that phrase, but you know, it's very true. Um, so, you know, j- just going back to the, to the constitution though, you know, there, again, we have a lot of talk about party and ideology and, you know, again, the most important thing is, Hey, look, my, my allegiance and our, our allegiance as former service members is to the constitution, right? It's to the constitution and by extension, the American people, and that's it. Right. So um, it really actually is pretty simple. Uh, And, and unfortunately we have a lot of extraneous noise and a lot of other kind of parties who, um, or groups of folks that, that would love to kind of make it more complicated than that, but it's really pretty simple constitution and the people of the United States. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's what happens and I got to imagine I'm, I'm not a politician. I, you know, have never been a fan of politics, but I, I understand that, you know, it's, it's difficult to make things that simple when you're in that, you know, that line of work, because there's, you know, it's one of those, um, I'm trying to think of what the the theory is or whatever the, you know, what we call the universal gas law, right? A a change in one of these things will affect a change in one or both of the others. I I know it's not that simple. And it's, I think it's because the people there make it not that simple. You know, everybody has agendas and stuff, but it it seems like, you know, agendas are a lot of the agendas that they have from, from what I can tell my point of view is people, who are in there are a lot more self-serving uh, than may, maybe somebody who, who doesn't have a Scott Dayton, uh, somebody, cause you know, that's my big thing, you know, Scott and Chris Mosco and Sean Carson and, you know, all these other guys, Brad, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they don't have people like that, that they can kind of, I guess, use as, as part of their moral compass to, to say like, Hey, I got to remember, this is, this is what the thing is. And, you know, for me, one thing I always knew about Scott, like if you knew Scott, the, the one thing that was more important to him than any, anything else was brotherhood. And um, he was always the first one at the end of the day to say, Hey, I'll go get a 12 pack of beers and we'll sit here in the, in the team cage and, <laughs> you know, before we go home and, and just hang out and, and be with each other. So, yeah, you know, it, it's tough, but I, I know, you know, I feel like people who have served probably have a better understanding of like, Hey, you know, here, here's the path, right here. It's, it's, it doesn't have to be as complicated as people like to make it. Um, yeah. I think that's spot on. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm so passionate about, the concept of national service and it can come in many different forms. It does not have to be just the military. We have a lot of other opportunities for people to serve, whether it be foreign service, peace corps, teach for America, nonprofits, faith groups, whatever. But, but, but I think we need to find creative ways to encourage more young folks to serve before they really live their lives and start their, you know, uh, sort of career paths and career arcs in the, in, in the private sector. And, beyond because when you when you struggle and you have to fight alongside people for something uh, bigger than yourself you you learn a lot about people you learn about society and you learn about what it truly means to be an American and uh, again I think we need more I think we need more 
more of that in our lives. Um, especially today in the era of social media where, you know, if you're working from home, you can legitimately never leave your house for two weeks and never talk to another human being in person. And as good as zoom is, and you know, as good as social media is it, there's no substitute for actually speaking to someone face to face and understanding those interpersonal dynamics, uh, especially when you're trying to accomplish some sort of mission together. So, um, you know, we have to find creative solutions, whether it be through policy or, you know, uh, enabling groups and communities or enabling groups at the state level, whatever. I think there's, you know, a mix of answers out there, but find, find ways to get people to serve more because I think that's going to create the critical mass of leaders for the next generation that are, that are able to put the country and, you know, concepts above themselves and their own narrow interests first. And I think especially your point, the folks that have been serving in capacities like we have in, in the special operations community, special warfare, special forces, and, and some of these other folks that have served multiple tours overseas that really have a really good understanding of the international and political spectrum and what's going on and understand how we fit in the, the puzzle piece of the United States and how we fit into the, the world politics, because it, it's all, you know, it's that ripple effect, you know, whatever, when you throw that pebble into the lake, it, it has that complete ripple effect. And, you know, if, if you don't understand and you're not wise to, to that, you know, I don't know if you're, you know, I don't know if you have a place or, you know, I don't know if the resume qualifies necessarily to serve sometimes in, in these national type of leadership roles. If you, unless you have that really under, you know, that, that firsthand knowledge that boots on the ground uh, understanding of, you know, I, I, you know, having been in the middle East, like all of us have, you know, we, we understand the middle East politics, you know, because we've walked the grounds there multiple times, you know, and, and served in Europe and African things like that. Like, like I've got to, you know, it, it's, it's eye opening and also makes you appreciate even more what we have here and, and, ha and to hold those values even closer. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's again, a, a extremely salient viewpoint. I mean, it, it, you know, we, we, it's, it's sometimes easy to forget <clears throat> just amidst all the kind of domestic disputes we've had, right. And the focus on domestic politics that the international uh, sphere is, is not safe. Uh, you know, it, it's extremely dangerous. We have a lot of people that mean to do us harm and are actively trying to do us harm, but <clears throat> you know, uh, geopolitics and our economic situation have been such that you know, most people in the United States have been insulated from the international sphere in a way that really hasn't happened in our nation's history and in the history of most nations around the world. But I think that time is quickly changing, right? We have near peer competitors that are strengthening militarily, strengthening economically. Uh, they're very cohesive politically and socially. And, and it's going to come time pretty soon here where our divisions in the country will pose real national security threats. So I think there's an exigency to this sort of partisanship and the divisiveness we've had in this country that I don't think is top of mind to most people, but, but I really do think that given the experience we've had and the exposure we've had to the international sphere and you know countries and continents and all these places that, that are home to people that truly mean to, to do us harm and to 
to disrupt our way of life, um, you know, there will be consequences if we continue down this path. And that's an, another factor that got me off the sidelines as well, because, you know, it's a very real threat. Yeah. And, you know, you had mentioned social media too. I know that that is a huge issue because really like that, that stuff, like, you know, I, I work in sales, right. And I understand like content engagement strategies and all that, like, like that's, it's almost become like more of like a, an online popularity contest from what I can see a lot of the times and people, you know, obviously the outliers are the ones who are the ones that get the most attention because they scream the loudest. And, and so people are always looking in the direction of, of the noise. I, I equate that to like being overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, you have like the insurgents or Taliban or whatever over here. And then you have, you know, the, obviously the coalition over here, but in the middle, you have tons, tons of people like just regular. And I saw them all the time. They're just regular people that just want to live their lives. Right. And, and I was like, this is almost exactly like it is in America. People think that we're really different. Yeah. There's, there's some nuances, but the majority of it is, is yeah, you have, you know, those people outside the three, three uh, standard deviations or whatever that, <laughs> that are screaming their heads off, like, look at me, but in the sure. middle, you just, you know, 99.5% of the people that fall within that, you know, they, they say, Hey, I don't care about any of that stuff. I just, I want to be able to live my life and, and be happy. I don't want to hurt other people. I don't want to, you know, I don't want anything bad to happen to anybody else. I just, I want to be able to take care of myself and my family and, and make sure my kids grow up and, and are happy themselves. And, you know, it's just sad that, like you said, <laughs> social media, I think, yes, it's a powerful tool, but as we've seen with any kind of tool, it, it's not always used for good. I think that, you know, a lot of harm is being done by people who, really don't care. They just, they want to get that attention. I mean, you talk about the broad middle, right? And, and again, the broad middle exists everywhere in the world and the people in the broad middle are essentially the same. And like, I come from the broad middle. My mom is from the broad middle and this just makes me think of her again. So when I went to the Naval Academy, she was really upset and she cried. And then when I told her I was going to, you know, take apart bombs in the Navy, she got even more upset and started crying harder. And then when I told her that I was going to run for Congress, she cried the hardest and said she was more scared for me that I was running for Congress. than you know, the time I told her that I was going to take apart bombs for a living, but uh, which, you know, should say something about our state of politics. But, um, but the next day she called me and she said, Hey, look, you know, I think you're doing the right thing because no one speaks for me and the people like me in the middle who don't care about these crazy ideological topics, who don't want to engage in the, in, in the partisan muddling. You should, you know, just be, be a voice for reason. So I think you're right. Like we need a coalition of the common sense and reasonable to refocus and to recenter our politics and, and, and to seize back the narrative. And, you know, social media is a piece of that, but you know, I think if just more people stood up and they demanded more, we would get more. We just have to, we have to tell people we're done tolerating what, what we're getting right now from, you know, our leadership in this country. Kind of like a stop paying attention to the sideshow and, and 
let's let's look at the main event here. Yeah, yeah I you know, spot on, man. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. But it's it's funny that your mom was more afraid of you running for Congress, and it's probably inherently more risky. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> seems to be good luck though. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> your um, yeah, it's 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 funny. I I had an, another friend that I made here. Um, he he's a veteran, and and he said he said, hey, look, man, you know, you're used to the bullets coming at you from the front. He said, in this business, the knives come at you from behind, so they're so they're really hard to see. And that's I I I thought that was a, another pretty funny metaphor because I think that's spot honest. Yeah, as well. So, well, you know, I, I think it it takes a you know a tremendous amount of of strong character to mm-hmm. to come into this and be altruistic and and know like you know people are are going to be out there to hurt you and not just I, you know it's funny it's like almost like in a gunfight it's not that big of a deal because you know or you know they're they're shooting at you with the intent of just yeah let's let's take this person out of the fight it's it's completely different kind of um, dynamic going to where to going to where you're at. And and I hope you get there um, because I think we need more guys like you in those leadership positions, making like the, the big picture decisions. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, like, look, I mean, I'm in this to win it. I want to win and I'm going to fight as hard as I possibly can. But at the end of the day, if I lose, you know, the worst thing that happens is I'm not a U.S. congressman and I still have my family and I can still continue on an arc of service and I can continue to be engaged in my community. So, you know, I think the problem is when when people get into the process or they go into the process with one thing in mind, and that's aggrandizing power. Well, of course, you're going to get what we have now, which is, you know, people that are interested in power and influence and not in doing the right thing. But I think if you look at it, this way and say, Hey, look, I'm, I'm going into this. I'm going to fight. I'm going to do everything I can, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to compromise, you know, my honor and my principles to be elected. And, you know, so, so I can be called, you know, Congressman Galooch instead of Dave. I mean, that's, that's not worth it because I have to live with myself the rest of my life, you know, just, uh, I don't think a lot of people know, I know a little bit about it, but can you walk us through a little bit about, it's not just, go down and sign your name on a dotted line and, and now you're on a ballot. Can you, can you walk us through just a little bit on what, what it actually takes to throw your hat officially into the ring to run for uh, Congress, in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, there's a lot of official things you have to do and then a lot more unofficial things behind the scenes, but, uh, but officially, right. You file, you, you essentially file two sheets of paper with the Federal Election Commission, which just says, hey, look, I'm setting up a, um, you know, I'm so-and-so and I'm setting up a campaign committee, um, which is essentially the tax tax organization. And, and you get an associated ID, which, which essentially serves as your vehicle for collecting money. Um, and so, so you file, you know, two sheets of paper with the FEC. Uh, and then you're officially a candidate, but to appear on the ballot, you need to get a certain number of signatures based on the level of office that you're running for from, from folks to, to actually appear on the ballot. Now, I haven't started that process yet because we're still in the 2021 election cycle. I'll be running in 2022. So, um, you know, going into 2022, we'll start that process. But uh, to, to appear on the ballot, you need to hit a threshold number of signatures, and then those signatures get verified against, you know, 
the voting record to make sure the individuals are, are actually uh, uh, registered to vote in your in your particular district if you're running for Congress. Obviously, if you're running for Senate, statewide office, so they just have to be, you know, domiciled uh, in the state of Pennsylvania and registered in the state of Pennsylvania. So those are the kind of official things you do. But there's a lot more behind the scenes as far as understanding who the kind of local political uh, uh, local political leaders are, county political leaders, state political leaders, understanding the endorsement process. So every every place endorses candidates differently. So for U.S. Congress, right, um, you know, it's usually all of the county parties that are in your congressional district choose who they endorse uh, as a candidate going into the primary. And, you know, that process looks different between um, states and congressional districts. So that's something else you have to think about. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a lot of things behind the scenes as far as networking and just being, being, being plugged into the various interest groups and, you know, folks, folks who have influence in your, uh, in your district and kind of understand who, uh, who the players are all while, <laughs> you know, staying true to actually understanding the average voter in the district, right? Because there's a lot of noise in politics, just like there is in the media, like we talked about before, who, you know, um, oftentimes control the narrative, but, you know, you don't serve the interest groups, you don't serve the powerful people, you serve the everyday citizen. So, you know, it's it, for me, I've spent a lot of time just at various events and just kind of walking around, right? I knock doors every weekend for, for our local candidates, but, you know, I'm doing that A, to support all of my friends who are running for office in 2021, but more importantly, to understand the concerns of voters and, you know, understand their priorities and, and, and how, and how they view the world. So, you know, running for office is like juggling a million balls uh, while walking a tightrope, but uh, to, to officially throw your hat in the ring, you know, there's not, there's not a whole lot you have to do. You know, the funny thing is when I was up there in, in uh, 19, you'd always hear the, or at least I would speak with folks and they didn't know that I worked up there and they would say, well, they don't do, they don't do anything up there. They, there's, they, they're lazy. They don't do anything. You know, the amazing thing is, especially my boss, they are so busy. If they're not, now they do travel a lot, but when they're not, you know, they, they come in, uh, the, they come into DC on Monday, there were roll call votes on Monday, which is basically a muster for, for the military. Yep. And, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, committee meetings, floor votes, um, all, all those kinds of things, uh, hearings, you know, meeting with constituents, all kinds of things. It wouldn't be uncommon for me to see my boss seven o'clock at night, you know, I'm, I'm finally leaving. He's coming back from the floor from a, from a vote or something like that. He's got something else to do. He's probably meeting with some constituents out in town, maybe who knows, you know, then he flies back to whatever, you know, he's, he's flying back to Florida on Thursday night or yeah, Thursday night and meeting with constituents on the weekends doing, you know, he, it wasn't near his uh, election year for him, but imagine if it was an election year, you know, you're going back and campaigning across the state. I mean, they they told us when we were doing our indoctrination that it's not uncommon for them to work, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week when you roll the travel time and news time, you know, media time and constituents and committee meetings and votes and all that stuff. People think they don't work very hard up there. But I'm telling you, 
it's a full-time job and then some and the staff i mean when we talk about making the sausage earlier man the the, the staff and the caliber of people that are up on some of those staffs that i got to meet i mean you're talking you know ivy league folks i i got to work with uh general mattis's nephew awesome awesome guy i work with uh, liz cheney's daughter she sat in the desk next to me i mean there was just some phenomenal folks that i got to work with while i was up there you know and a lot of these folks are you know uva grads and academy grads and you know just the and these are the ones that are creating the legislation for the boss and and he's reviewing it and and making sure it jives with what with what he's thinking you know it's it, and you're doing that you're almost doing military decision-making process, but you're doing it in a legislative format. It's just a, a different flavor, but it's just a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal thing. Yeah. There's, there's a lot that goes into it, obviously that's, you know, totally transparent to, to the public. Um, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I think about it and there, you spend a lot of time doing a lot of different things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm three weeks into this, right. So um that's not necessarily a bad thing though, right? Because being one part of running a country um, is hard. <laughs> a country of 330 million people that spans an entire continent and, you know, has the biggest economy in the world is, is hard. It's very hard. And that's something I've, I've tried to communicate to people is, hey, look, I mean, most people in their lives, whether or not they're politicians, are, are trying to do the right thing. Right. They're, they're, they're trying to do what, you know, they think is best and they're trying to do what they think is uh, or they're trying to carry out what they believe is, is the right course of action. But um, at the same time, you know, I, I do think some of what you talked about. Right. So you've got, you know, generally speaking, the same types of folks staffing and working in Washington. So you've got elite Ivy League grads, UVA grads, you know, well, well credentialed folks. I think that speaks to a challenge we have in the United States that, you know, as the economy becomes a more knowledge-based economy and as the country becomes more complex technologically, um, you know, the gains of the economy and the influence in the government, I think, um, is being concentrated in, in uh, smaller, more well-credentialed elite. And, and, and I do think we, we have to find creative ways to ensure that the government, our institutions, our culture, and our economy remain responsive to everyone in the country. Um, you know, you're from West Virginia. Um, you know, probably not a lot of staffers from West Virginia working in, you know, members' offices, right? But I can bet you there's a lot from New York, a lot from California, a lot from Massachusetts working in everyone's offices, right? So, you know, that's, I think that's an immense challenge. And to me, it's, it's kind of at the center of my campaign, right? I mean, I, and I, I look at it through the economic lens, just because I was an econ major, I got my graduate degree in economics, but more importantly, I've just always been fascinated with kind of economic development and industrialization. Um, but, you know, my, my great grandfather raised a family of five, put them all through college on a steelworker salary, didn't step a foot into college his entire life, right? Um, I'm not saying we can turn the clock back and, you know, replicate that situation. But, but I do think that demanding that everyone gets two master's degrees from an elite institution uh, and, you know, works in the knowledge economy is not a realistic way for, for, for us to continue. And, um, you know, I think we need a renaissance of American manufacturing and, 
a way to generate economic opportunity and, and productivity and wage enhancing employment across every geography across the United States. It can't just be in 10, 10 major metro areas. So, you know, that's, that's really what I'm passionate about, especially because um, I think a lot of what we do in life is downstream of economics. So oftentimes, whether or not we choose to form a family and stay married, you know, is, um, is dependent upon the economic prospects for, for, for that family in, in the community I live in. So, um, you know, if we want families to, to stay together, we want families to be well off, we want individuals to be able to start, to start small businesses, which become, you know, icons in their community and provide employment and, you know, help to build and sustain all of these institutions in our communities. It starts with good paying jobs and economic opportunity, not just for breadwinners, but for their children as well. So um, that's, that's kind of the bedrock of my campaign. And it's kind of the issue that, that I'm, I'm using as, as, as a lens through which to view a lot of the other issues we, we face as a country. You know, that's, well, first of all, before we get too far into this, I want to say if there's anybody out there in West Virginia or Kentucky or Tennessee that y'all need to get on up there to DC and getting some staffing jobs. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I'm from West Virginia too, but um I'm a big fan. I, you know, I listen to Mike Rowe all the time and I really well, like what he does uh, talking mm -hmm. about, you know, the importance of skilled labor. And I think um, that's kind of a big issue because you have so many people that think like college is the only way to go. And, and for me working in financial services, that's something I pay attention to the ridiculous uh, increase in the cost of, of higher education. Uh, I call it the higher education industry. Now I don't call them institutions of higher learning. Um, it's just, Hey, you know, let's, let's fatten these administrative departments and, and, you know, we can charge more because the government's going to subsidize everything. And, and we need to put the word out that you're going to be a loser if you don't go to college. Meanwhile, you know, the, the infrastructure is, is crumbling. There's a huge gap in, you know, the amount of, of skilled labor positions that, that need to be filled versus the amount of people that can fill them. So, I, I, I like that. And, you know, I, I think it's important that we kind of maybe help start shaping that narrative of like, you don't have to go to college and, and get a degree in, you know, art history, just so you can end up going and working at Starbucks. Uh, go, go learn something, go learn a trade or something where, cause there's, you know, I was talking to my little brother about this. I have a 19 year old brother who's, who's got all these certifications to do like body work and stuff on cars. I'm like, why, why aren't you doing that? Like go out and find opportunities where you can make money and, you know, wait, you don't, you don't have to go to, to a four-year university to be a productive person. Yeah. I, I think, you know, higher, higher institute or institutions of, of, higher learning, you know, I, I, I think everyone is trying to do the right thing at those institutions. I mean, the individuals running them value education and, you know, we need educated engineers to ensure, you know, we remain technologically competitive. We need, you know, folks going to college. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, but, but at the same time, I think we need to reassess how well our institutions of higher learning are preparing people to enter the 21st century labor market. And are, and are those individuals being endowed with the right skills? And if they're not, how do we find ways to do that? And, and I, to me, you know, the answer is 
look, can, can we provide more optionality at the secondary education level like high school to enhance vocational educational opportunities and educations in the trades? Um, you know, and, 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 but it's not just the trades. Uh, there's an interesting talk by Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, where he was, he was talking, he got a question in a forum, you know, why do you, why do you make the iPhone in China? And people assume that it's because it's just cheapest to make the iPhone in China. And he actually said, you know, there, there are places we can make it for cheaper, but the reason we make it in China is, you know, I can fill up stadiums of machine toolists who, who have the skills needed to make iPhones in China. He's like, in the United States, I can't fill up this forum with the machine toolists to make iPhones. So, you know, I think there are creative things we can do at the secondary education level, whether it be like hybrid apprenticeships to where someone goes to school three, three days a week and the other two days a week, they're actually working in a company and they're learning how to make, you know, iPhones or micro trips or, you know, you name it, right? High tech, high tech manufacturing, machine tooling. Um, I think there are ways, you know, you could pay them a third to a quarter of what a full-time worker is getting and they're still getting educated three days a week in a high school. And then as soon as they graduate, boom, they have a ready-made job and their skills are commensurate with what's being demanded in the labor market. And I also think, hey, look, if we train the skills, the companies will come, right? Um, so, you know, you do have a bit of the chicken or the egg problem, but but I think there are, there are common sense things we can do to encourage the development of the skills we need to remain competitive as a country. Um, and, and a lot of that, you know, can be related to manufacturing, um, which is tied to national security, right? So again, microchips and that sort of thing we need for our, our national security, advanced pharmaceutical ingredients, as we found out in the COVID-19 uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, crisis, right? So, you know, I don't think we can leave any any stone unturned. And, and I think we have to take a multifaceted approach to it. But the last thing I would say is, and I think Trevor, you kind of alluded to this, there's, there's a sort of cultural expectation of you will go to college. And if you don't go to college, you're, you know, a second class citizen of sorts, unfortunately, no one, no one would say that, but I, but I think that's kind of the implication people get. And I think that's terrible. I think that's absolutely terrible, right? There's a million ways to live a valid life. And we have so many jobs and careers that are absolutely essential to us. Again, we found that out in COVID. So I think re reprioritizing what we value in employment, um, is absolutely essential as well. Yeah, when I was up there, I keep going back to my Capitol Hill days, but I did get to speak with the aircraft carrier industrial base when they, I believe it was a Stennis that the Navy decided it was a little strategic thing they were doing. They weren't going to do the midlife uh, refit, refueling or whatever on the Stennis. So the aircraft carrier industrial base comes up and they give us the, hey, hey what WTF over. And so we got to meet with all those folks and after the meeting was over, I was sitting there talking with a, a lot of the corporate leadership and started talking to them about the, what we were just talking about. And they said there are two uh, biggest shortages they were having were welders and machinists. And so I'd done a little bit of research for it in there. And I, it was folks from Newport News, which is just right up the street from where Trevor and I live in, in, uh, in, in Suffolk. And when they the guy said, I said, well, you know, how much are you paying a welder right out of school, a, a apprentice welder? So, you know, I was like, okay, I'm 19 years old. I got my certificate from Tidewater Community College in maritime welding. And he's like, yeah, I'll pay you 45K full benefits. So I'm like, 19 years old, I'm getting paid 45K full benefits. My 
my peers are in uh, Virginia Tech or OD, Old Dominion or wherever, pick a, pick a university, mounting college debt, uh, so on and so forth. Now, by the time they get out of their undergrad, now uh, this kid, this young adult, is now on his way to be a journeyman welder. How much is a journeyman welder making? Around, I, I'm off, probably off of my numbers a little bit, but he said, I believe he said somewhere around 70. So now this person's, you know, in the early to mid 20s, now making 70 some thousand a year with absolutely, I mean, I think the Tidewater certificate costs maybe 10 grand. I'm, I'm probably a little bit off of my numbers, but 10 grand is what I remember. So this, this person should have no college debt or no nothing for the trade whatsoever by that time. And I said, okay, so let's just get crazy here with the, what's a master welder? And he's like, well, that's, that's kind of a unicorn. You know, we pass those people around between our corporations. You just, you can't find them. And when you do find them, you pay them pretty much whatever they ask, but it's, it's six figures is what you're going to pay a, a master welder and then some, you know? So when you look at that type of salary, you know, those, when you look at, and it, you know, I was listening to Sebastian Younger on Joe Rogan's podcast the other day, and we're talking about his Sebastian Younger's new book, Freedom. You know, I'm thinking, man, you're you're a welder, and you 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 have no debt, and you're in your mid twenties and mid to late twenties, and you're making that kind of money. I mean, what kind of freedom you you you're set up in 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 the transition space that we we're talking about? You know, that we're kind of is the is the backbone of this podcast is. It, it disappoints me a little bit that that's not one of the main focuses that there's not like headhunters that are really sitting outside the gates of Norfolk Naval Base going, what do you mean? You sh you've been showing up every day for work for the last four years. You have, we've been, you've been tested for drugs uh, routinely. So, and, and you're, you're obviously proven competent. So, you know, I think that's just such a, you know, people are, are absolute resource of, of any company, usually the, the, the primary resource. And just to have that resource, just, I mean, it's like apples falling off a tree, man. They, they're just coming out of the gates of any military base around. And you just, I just want to just, Hey man, Hey, why don't you go be a welder? Hey, why don't you go be a truck driver, drive hazardous materials, you know, be a, be a machinist and they're there. And we, and it's just, we haven't shaped the narrative, I think, to get to where you're talking about. And my boss, when I worked up there, man, he was such a hawk on, on China with the defense microelectronics and, and the pharmaceuticals. I got to meet a lady who wrote a wonderful book on that, on the pharmaceutical stuff. It was like one of the first constituent meetings I had. And she, that really resonated with me. But uh, those are great points. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the other piece, so, I mean, again, the national security aspect of it, I think is, is something that people oftentimes overlook, but you know, there, there is a huge strategic imperative for the United States to have an industrial base that's flexible and, and, and can be, you know, um, harnessed in times of crisis. Right. I think last year, China built 14 ships. We built one. It takes us nine years to build an aircraft carrier. Uh, God forbid a ship, you know, gets damaged and has to go into a shipyard. It'll be there for two years right? All, all of these things are problems. <laughs> um, so, you know, they need to be addressed and, and they need to be addressed quickly. And, and for me, I mean, we have a shipyard in my district. It's a civilian shipyard, but, um, we, but we also have the, have the Philadelphia Navy Yard. The Delaware River is a deep water river. It's not far from Norfolk. 
So not far from where the fleet's parked. Uh, and, you know, Chester, which is a city just down the Delaware River from Philadelphia, used to be, you know, a, a, essentially a capital of civilian shipbuilding, you know, um, building Liberty ships there during the Second World War, you know, probably one a day, which is insane, <laughs> insane to think about these days, right? A ship going into the water every single day. But, um, you know, all, all of these areas are areas that have been totally neglected really since, since the 1960s, as far as shipbuilding goes. So I think there's a story to be told of, of, you know, providing productivity, skill and wage enhancing employment here, here in the district, in those shipyards, while, while also benefiting national security and the flexibility of the Navy, which obviously is passionate or where all of us are passionate about, but the other piece of industry is, you know, unlike, you know, jobs, which really kind of dominate the knowledge economy where you can work remotely and hence live anywhere and, and, and contribute to, to the tendency for talent to kind of agglomerate in major metro areas. When you have physical manufacturing or, you know, you, you have things that are actually being made, the physical capital is spread out throughout the country. So um, in that sense, you know, we can bring jobs back to areas that really haven't had any economic vitality in half a century. Because uh, I'm a strong believer that, you know, the community that you are born into and you grow up into shouldn't be a place you have to flee to find opportunity. There's, there's a lot of value in that community, the, you know, the traditions you inherit, your family lives there, the, you know, the fond memories you have of playing on playgrounds, like all of those things are not things people should have to flee just to provide for their family, right? So, I think there's a lot of threads to this central theme, which speak to a lot of people and, you know, are worth engaging with. Well, uh, you make a really valid point because I was back in my hometown last weekend for a wedding and my, my friend who was getting married made a point during a speech that his oldest friend was there and he's now retiring from 30 years in the Navy. And so there's a bunch of people coming back, coming up to me and asking me, Oh, you coming back to, to Parkersburg, you want to retire back here in Parkersburg? And I was like, no, no way. I mean, to your point, I've left there for, to seek opportunity because the vast majority of industry from 1970s, early seventies when I was born until now is gone. It's all gone, almost all gone. So unless I want to, and my retirement will go pretty far there based on cost of living but as far as opportunities for you know post navy career path there's there's not a whole lot there and i think with you you know the vision you're talking about would be phenomenal to bring some of that back into those areas yeah and look i mean i'm not saying we you know you have to oppose change i mean structural economic change is just a part of economic growth and we need economic growth to to ensure you know we continue to have a, a better future, right? Uh, obviously, you know, I love the free market. The free market is the, the greatest driver of wealth increase the world has ever seen. So, you know, I'm not saying counteract it. I'm saying let's just try and build some bridges of opportunity to those areas that haven't had any in, in, in half a century. And again, I think there's going back to the theme, I think there's common sense and reasonable policy steps you can take to do that. You're muted, buddy. Uh, sorry. There we go. <laughs> sure. um, yeah, he, well, I know we, we kind of ran over there on time. I, I wasn't sure how much time you had allocated for this today. But, oh, good. Yeah. Um, good. You know, at, at the very least, you know, I wanted to say th 
thanks for coming on because we really appreciate having you come on and chat with us. And we're kind of honored that we're your first um, big thing that you're doing. But uh, before we get into any kind of final thoughts that you might have, where can people find out more about you and, and what you're doing? Yeah. So right now, um, you know, we're three weeks into this, so we're still working on the website, but Facebook page, uh, David Galooch and then David Galooch for Congress, Instagram, David Galooch, uh, getting social media as, you know, just being in the Navy, I, I hadn't had social media to be honest with you, as I'm sure you guys are familiar with. So, you know, getting, getting on all of it right now. So those, those kind of three, three pages are where you can find me now, obviously more to, more to come in the future. Uh, as far as website and, you know, more social media functionality and platforms. And then uh, I will say um, I do have a page on uh, WinRed, which is the donation platform. Um, if you're so compelled to give a campaign contribution. So you can do that through winred.com. You can find me on there. Yeah. We'll, we'll throw a link into that too. in the, um, in the show notes when we put it up. So anything, uh, any other parting words that uh, you wanted to put out there? You know, I would just say to veterans getting out of the military, uh, look, you know, you may have taken off the uniform, but in a way your pledge to support, protect and defend the constitution never ends. So I would just encourage everyone to stay, stay involved at some level uh, in politics, even if that means at the local level, attending your township meetings, understanding what's going on, knocking doors for your buddy who's running for school board, something along those lines. But, you know, I firmly believe citizenship has its burdens and, you know, part of that is being an active participant in government and all of us can be an active participant in, 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 in a bunch of different ways. So, you know, if you're, if you're disheartened about the state of our politics, I get it. Oftentimes I get disheartened too, but at the end of the day, it's never going to change unless you get involved, you get off the sidelines and we, we make it happen. So, um, you know, as, as veterans, I think we have a really valuable perspective and a lot of stories that should be told and, and deserve to be heard. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I can encourage folk, folks to come forward and get involved, however that looks like. Couldn't agree more. I know there, there's too many people, you know, complaining and not enough stepping up to do something about it. So, well, David, we appreciate you coming on the show and chatting with us and, um, it, don't forget to check out uh, when you said winred.com. Yep. Yeah. Make yep. sure you help David uh, become the, do we have, I don't think we have any Navy EOD techs in Congress right now, do we? Nope. All right. We need to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> thanks guys. That would be awesome. <laughs> Appreciate it, David. Thanks for yeah. coming on. Dave, thanks for coming on. I think the future man looks really bright for you. I think you're going to go on and do some great things and uh, looking forward to supporting you in that. Endeavor. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate you having me on. Have a good day. Take care. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Get to Vet podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our channel and follow us on LinkedIn. If you'd like to come on the show, email us at Mike or Trevor at gettovet.net. That's get the number two vet.net and let us help you get to vet.